Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to attend the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra's presentation of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is thought to be his greatest and most complex work. And in fact, at the time that it was composed by Beethoven, it was considered the most complex symphony that had ever been made. And so for me to be able to see this performed live by the many skilled musicians was a truly memorable experience that I remember to this day. And when you see us, when you think of a symphony being composed, even now you can imagine all that goes into a production like that. You have the, the violins and the violas and the horns and the flutes and even the chorus and all these things are, uh, and many other instruments, all combining together to perform this incredible work of art. Our hymn that we sing, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. The melody for that hymn comes from just one of the parts of this varied and complex and incredible work of art that Beethoven composed. And if you think about the uh, production of that, the uh, playing of that symphony, each of those musicians is playing their individual instrument. They all are performing the part that they've been given to play, and each part is unique. And yet when they are combined together, they combine together to present something that is full of beauty 
and glory, something that moves the heart and the soul when you hear it. And by doing so, they are performing out, they're living out Beethoven's workmanship. Well, today, in this message, I want to talk about God's workmanship. Uh, as, As impressive and moving as Beethoven's workmanship is, God's workmanship is uh, varied and complex and beautiful and full of things that display majesty and beauty and glory. God's works are varied and many. We have uh, many hymns that extol God's creation in nature and how the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the oceans and the stars in the heavens display the glory of God. And I hope that you from time to time and often have an opportunity to be moved by God's glory and beauty in his creation that's all around us. The snow falling from the sky, resting on the trees and and the beauty of so many things that God has made. You see the wisdom and the intelligence and the creativity that went into that, not only making something that functions, but has beauty and glory and a majesty to it. And all those things reflect the greater majesty still of the creator that made them. But one of God's greatest works, one of God's most incredible works for which he pours himself into is the work of his people. The work of God's people. That God creates his people to be a means through which he displays glory and majesty and beauty. And and if we understand that, if we understand our place in that, then we can find meaning and purpose and understanding in our life as part of something bigger than just ourselves, as part of God's incredible plan and purpose. Each of those musicians display, uh, playing their part in Beethoven's symphony, their part by itself would be something uh, impressive, something uh, that would would be by itself beautiful and have a certain beauty. But it's, it's only when it's combined into the whole that it achieves its fullness. And so may our lives, too, as God's people, be part of a whole purpose that God is working together. And that's much of what the book of Ephesians is about. Going back to the first chapter, Paul writes that, God has in in his purpose in the dispensation of the fullness of times to gather together in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That we are being given a glimpse into God's divine and incredible purpose to unite the creation in Jesus Christ. And part of that uniting is talked about in the second part of Ephesians 2, where that uniting together all things in Christ meant breaking down the wall of division that had existed through history up till that time between Jew and Gentile. And that God in Christ united them together in one people. And the purpose of that one people was to be a temple of God on the earth made up of living stones where God would inhabit, where he, God would come himself to dwell 
And that is, in fact, what happens in the church of Jesus Christ is that we are called a temple of the Holy Spirit because the temple is the place where God comes to live and to dwell with man. And, and in the Old Testament times, there was a temple made with wood and stone that was made of those inanimate objects and God would come down and dwell in his presence. But in the new covenant, the temple is the people of God joined together as made up of living stones, built it up to be a habitation of God through the spirit. And each one of us, each one of God's people has a calling and a role and, and, and are uniquely gifted by God to fulfill that role. God has equipped his people to fulfill their purpose as part of God's bigger purpose. And that, uh, that together forms that uh, great workmanship of God. And so this is uh, how this part of the passage that we read today, 1 through 10, comes to its conclusion. For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So let's look today at three parts of this. Three parts of what is talked about here. First is about how we were dead in trespasses and sins. Second, about how God made us alive. Quicken, that's what quickened means, to make alive. How God made us alive. And then third, how salvation is the work of God, as as it speaks about here in the last three verses of this. So first of all, going back to the beginning of this part, it says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The, The literal language of this chapter of Ephesians begins with the previous state of the people who he's writing to says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, in the King James printing of the Bible, uh, if a words, words are in italics, uh, that means that they are being supplied by the translator. They weren't in that uh, verse in the original, but they were considered necessary to understand the grammar and the flow of the language. So those words were supplied by the translators. So uh, you'll notice that hath he quickened is in italics here. That's not uh, for emphasis. The way they print the King James Bible, that means that the translator supplied those words. Now, they didn't supply them out of their own opinion or, or anything like that. They come from the text itself down in verse 5. Hath he quickened us together? They were considered necessary to understand what is going on in the language of that verse. But I just bring that up to emphasize that this begins this chapter by talking about your previous state as being dead in trespasses and sins. Now, who is he writing to? Who does this apply to? That might, that, that's the ever important question as we're reading the verses of the Bible is that we have to understand that these things, these letters were written, that it has a certain people, a certain audience in mind to receive 
the words that are written about here. Who's it talking to? Well, if you go back to the beginning, you see that it's written to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. The uh, the things that are spoken about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 all throughout this letter are written to the believers in Jesus Christ, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The immediate audience were the saints at Ephesus, literally the holy ones, the ones that were called and set apart, sanctified to serve God set apart for that holy purpose of serving God. But the, but the audience is not just the Ephesians, but it expands out beyond that and applies to the believers in Jesus Christ in every time and place all throughout history. And so to, down to us today, as we're reading this words, the reality of them, the truth that they speak about, our spiritual state and what God has done applies just as much today to the believer in Jesus Christ as it did 2,000 years ago to those believers in Ephesus. And so when he says, you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's talking about those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And so let's consider that for a moment. You at the quicken who were dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? The Bible uh, has a lot to say about the idea of being dead, of being dead. Uh, We can go right back to the very early chapters of the Bible. We see that God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden, and he warned them, he charged them, he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, for the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die, he tells them, when they would eat of the tree in disobedience and rebellion against God, and they did eat, and uh, and then... Uh, all throughout the Bible, this idea of, of death is, is throughout. We see that from the very beginning. Adam, uh, it said that from dust he came and to dust he would return. And then when he gave birth to his son, it says he, was, he made a son after his image. And he died. And right on down the generations, death has existed all throughout the generations. And uh, Jesus makes many interesting statements about about the word dead. Pay attention sometime as you're reading the Gospels and you see the language that Jesus uses. Because he sometimes uses the word dead in a way that uh, might seem strange to us. For example, there was one time where uh, he called a disciple to follow him and he said, he said, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. When his friend Lazarus died and was put into the grave in the tomb, he tells his disciples, he said, Lazarus sleeps. They say, well, if he's sleeping, he'll be fine. He'll he'll recover well. He says, no, Lazarus is dead. And so you see the way that Jesus often spoke about death was in a way that um, has a meaning that is beyond simply physical death of the body and 
And that's under consideration here. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That is the, the state of mankind in our sin. We are, by nature, in a state of being dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, he says, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And he says, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the mind. So he's not talking just about being uh, physically dead. He's not talking about rotting our bodies, rotting in a grave. He's saying you're going around, you're, you're doing things, you're, you're fulfilling the lusts of your flesh and of your mind, but in that state, you are dead. You are dead. Well, I think we can think of at least three things that might help us to understand this. First of all, is that uh, those that are in sin against God, trespasses and sins, uh, you know, those are two words that speak about different aspects of our rebellion against God. To trespass is to cross a boundary you're not supposed to cross. God's holy law, it, it contains all kinds of boundaries. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt do this. And when you cross those boundaries, you violate God's holy law by doing so. Uh, sin comes from this idea about missing the mark. All have sinned, it says, and fallen short of the glory of God. God created you. He created his creation for a purpose to fully manifest and display his glory. And we have not lived up to that calling. All have sinned and fallen short, come short of the glory of God. And it says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, in the day that they ate thereof, they had, from that moment forward, they had in themselves the sentence of death. We might say that we, in our sinful nature, are dead men walking. We're walking around. You know, we, we've, got, we've got breath in our lungs. We can move. We can do things. We can think. We can act. We can speak. But we have in ourselves a sentence of death. We're like the Israelites when they were in the wilderness and they rebelled against God. They murmured against God for the seems like the hundredth time. And God sent fiery serpents among them. And when they were bit by the serpents, they were poisoned. They were going to die. Now, they might still have been walking around for a while. They might still have been moving and speaking and talking, but they had in their very flesh that sentence of death. They were going to die if they were not rescued by some healing power of God. And that is like what our state is in our sin. We are here on this earth, but for a short time, but death stands before us as the inevitable outcome of our sin. And unless we be delivered by some healing power, we will perish. There's also in this biblical idea of death, 
there's an idea of being exiled from fellowship with God. In fact, that is literally what happened to Adam and Eve when they, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in disobedience to God's word. God had created them and placed them in a garden in Eden, which is called in another place, paradise. Eden was a paradise. You know, we're somewhat limited in what we know about what the garden in Eden was like. But every description we're given of it is something that is desirable and beautiful and nourishing and wonderful. It was the greatest place to be. It was a garden with trees that bore all manners of fruit that were good to the taste, that were nourishing to the body and to the whole being. They had everything that they needed. They were in a state of paradise. They had harmony with one another. They had harmony with the animals that God created. They, they, were, they were enjoying the goodness of the creation of God. When God creates something, when God makes something, what God does is very good. Is very good. And, and, and everything that's wrong, everything that we experience that's, that's evil and, and, and destructive and full of corruption and decay... That comes from, from something else that messes it up. That comes from our own sin or from the devil or from somewhere else. What God made was beautiful and glorious. And it was sin that ultimately messed it up. But they were put in this garden and they had everything. I mean, imagine how wonderful that would be. They had paradise. And then not only did they have paradise, but then they had the whole world to explore and to bring under uh, the God's authority and God's dominion. He said, fill the earth, subdue it. Right? He made them king and queen over his creation. And they could operate from that paradise and they could guard the garden and keep it. And there weren't thorns and thistles coming up and messing with uh, making everything harder than it had to be. It was wonderful. And best of all, Best of all, in that place, they had communion and fellowship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. I don't even know what that would have been like, but they had a closeness of the presence of God. They had nothing separating them from God. They had nothing. They they didn't have a guilty conscience. They didn't they didn't wake up and think, uh, oh, God's going to see me. What's he going to think of me today? They saw God as their loving father who they had peace and joy and communion with. It was great. But, but when sin entered, they were cast out of the garden and a, and a cherubim was put there with a sword to guard the entrance into the garden. And they were cast out. They were exiled. And, and that's our state as well by nature. By nature, because of sin, we are exiled from fellowship with God. So unless something comes in to restore that fellowship, then we'll be cut off from the life of God. Here's a third aspect of what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. It means it is impossible for you in that state to please God. It's impossible to please God. 
you in that state of being dead in trespasses and sins, not only are you exiled from fellowship with God, not only do you look forward to a just uh, uh, judgment for that, which is death itself. The wages of sin is death, it says, but you cannot heal yourself from it. You cannot, you are not able to fix what is wrong. So the salvation, the solution must come from outside yourself. It is an utterly hopeless and destitute state. And you couldn't have a strong, if you wanted to describe an utterly hopeless and destitute state, you could not uh, pick a word more fitting than being dead. Being dead, helpless and destitute and unable to heal yourself, unable to please God. In fact, the inability goes so deep that I think sometimes uh, we don't we don't really grasp it. Like, for example, you might think if I say you are unable in your sinful state to please God, you might say, wait, that doesn't sound fair. You mean I could I could want to please God and I could try my whole life and I wouldn't be able to. That doesn't seem fair. No, see, if we think that we're not quite getting how deep that state is, is that you cannot and you do not even want to. Your desires, see what it says? You fulfill the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. What you want to do is in opposition to God. And so the corruption and the inability to please God goes so deep, it infects our very will, our very heart. And when we understand how deep it goes, we can understand the magnitude of the power that's required to deliver us from it. And we can understand why in the middle of this description, uh, Paul has to, uh, he can't resist making this, um, in in our printing, it's even a parenthetical in verse 5. He cries out, by grace are ye saved. It's a gift from God. It's by God's generosity and kindness. So we see that is our state of death. This is how it manifests. This is how we observe it and see it and, and what, what it looks like. We had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That is a helpless state, that we are in a condition where we don't even want to please God, but our very desires themselves, our will, Our intentions are in opposition to God. And in the verses immediately following what we're reading today, it describes that state as being without hope and without God in the world. That's a hopeless state. But that's uh, the bad news. And the good news is that God, in the richness of his mercy, out of his great love, stepped in and delivered us and made us alive. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. So we so we we're introduced in verse four to the root 
of what's going to follow. There's all these consequences that flow out of what happens here. But it comes back to this. God's great love for which he loved us. God's character itself. God who is rich in mercy. If you, look, if you want to look for the root at the heart of, of, of all the blessings that we receive and enjoy in salvation, you go back to the very character and being of God himself. And you can't really, you can't really uh, explain it any more than that. There's a limit to our ability to explain it. I can't explain why God loves or why God is rich in mercy. It is who he is. That is his being. That is his character. And, and we, are, we praise him that that's the case. That God is a merciful God. That God is a loving God. I can't, I can't uh, answer why God loves you or why God loves me. I can only praise him for that. Because the reason is in himself. It's in who he is. That's the root. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved. He hath made us alive together with Christ. So now let's look at this. Uh, the, the second uh, part of the message. How God makes us alive, which is what this passage is about. You hath he quickened who are dead. God makes us alive. God, is, God demonstrates again and again and again, all throughout the history of his dealings with his people, that he is a God that raises the dead. He raises the dead. He does the impossible. He causes Sarah, 90 years old, I think, her womb, her ability to bear children, dead, past the point where it was reasonable or physically possible with man to, to, for her to bear a child, and God brings forth a child of promise from her. And God at times literally raised dead, the dead from the grave back into life and shows in time and time again how with man this is impossible, but with God all things is, are, are possible. So God, it says, when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. Well, also, I'll also break this down into three things. And this isn't necessarily comprehensive of everything that there is to this. But we can look at this from three different angles. How does God take dead sinners in trespass and sins and make them alive? Well, first of all, one aspect of it. By forgiving your sins. God is a forgiving God. Jesus often used the analogy of a debt that we are unable to pay. That's one way to think about your sin against God. God created you and you have obligations to your creator. He made you. And, and, and what he has asked of you is not unreasonable. It's just to be obedient to the, to the uh, righteousness and the rule that he has set out to do what he asks. He's in charge. He made you. You belong to him. And all that, that is reasonable and right is that you would obey what he has said and do what he has made you for. You know, if, if the conductor of the, of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra had a violinist and that violinist decided, you know what? I don't really like this 
Beethoven's Ninth Symphony thing. I'm just going to go out there, and while everybody else is playing, I'm just going to play whatever I want to play. And I'm just, I'm just going to you know, come up with something, and probably what I'm going to play, it's going to be better than what everybody else is playing. And, and he goes out there, and he just plays whatever you want. What do you think the conductor of the orchestra is going to do with that violinist? He's going to kick him off because he is not following what his purpose is as part of that orchestra. And, and rather than creating something beautiful and majestic, he is detracting from, he is falling short of the glory of what would have been created had he fulfilled obediently the calling which he was there for. And uh, so, so we owe God a great debt of all that we have, have failed, but it's not one we can pay. There's not anything that we could do to make up for that debt. And so Jesus used the analogy of a, a servant who comes to his master and he, he, uh, he says, have patience with me I, and, and I'll pay you. And it says when he saw he couldn't pay, he frankly forgave him. He wiped away the debt. He wiped the slate clean. And so Paul would write in another place, quoting the Psalms, he said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. Or to to say it another way, blessed is the man to whom God will not count his sin against him. God forgives sins. And that is... That is uh, part of what God is doing in, in delivering us, forgiving our sins. Uh, secondly, another, another aspect of this, making us alive together with Christ. You know, notice here, particularly what it's saying in verse uh, 5, it's, it's talking about something about the union with Christ. God makes us alive by uniting us to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. By uniting us to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. See, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he did not die for his own sins. He did not deserve to die. In fact, there was no justice that by itself would have required his death because he had no sin. So the fact that he died showed that he was dying for someone else's sins. And Isaiah chapter 53 speaks about the reality of this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. See, he bore the sins of his people on the cross. And we are... United to him in that. Uh, we are, his people are united to him. He went there on behalf of his people. So when he died and paid a, a just sacrifice for sin, we died with him. And that means also when he rose again to life, we rose with him. And it goes on when he was seated at the right hand of the father, when he was raised up into heaven itself, we were raised up with him. And so in our union with Christ as his people, we experience that death 
to sin. So sin is put away once and for all for God's people. And we are raised up with him to newness of life. Never to die again. Our bodies may die and rest in the grave. But if we live in Jesus Christ, we will never be cut off from the life of God. And even our mortal bodies themselves, we are guaranteed by the life of Christ that they will be raised up again. A third aspect of God's raising us back to newness of life is that God works by his spirit to transform the hearts of his people. You remember how I said that our uh, our spiritual state, our, our state of being is so hopeless and destitute that it goes down to our very hearts. Our hearts themselves are resistant to the truth of God, that we're in a state of enmity, that in our minds we are opposed to God's ways. And so necessary in God's work in us is that he would change our very heart, that he would change our will, that he would change our mind, because our mind is corrupt by nature. It's opposed to God's ways. We don't want him to reign over us. We don't want him to have authority over our lives. We don't want to submit to to his authority. And if you think, oh, people, we're not that, we're not that bad. No, we constantly, constantly rebel against the authority of God over our lives. And often in the places, maybe not in every aspect of our life, but when it really comes down to us, comes down to it, we don't want God to have the authority over our lives. We don't want somebody else to tell us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. And so God, in his mercy, he, he reaches into our very hearts and it says he takes out a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He takes out a heart that is resistant and hardened against the truth, against what is good, against what is pleasing to God. And he gives us a heart that is able to receive the things of truth and loves them and delights them, delights in the truth. Like Jesus said, he said to Pilate, he said, my sheep, uh, he said, they that are of the truth. Hear my voice and follow me. And he and he he ex, he implements his authority above all things through truth and through his word. And those whose hearts have been changed by the power of God delight to follow him. Where they previously in their minds were his enemies now delight to obey his will and his purpose. And so we see the power of God at work in these ways and so many other ways. Well, lastly, let's look for a little bit at this last three verses. For by grace are ye saved. Um, Well, this, let me just read verse 7, though. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, God's Majesty on display in his work of salvation. For by grace, he says, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Here, part of what he's saying here is to make sure that we, uh, we who have been recipients of the grace of God, who have experienced the delivering salvation of God through Christ, would have a right understanding of the ordering of how God's salvation works. We are his workmanship. He takes uh, time to emphasize, for example, not of works, lest any man should boast. It says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we have, we have here the cause and the means and the result of God's salvation of his people that are described. And it is very important that we get those right. It might seem like a small thing. It might seem like maybe they just all could blend together, and, but, but it is critical that we get the order right of those things. It is very common. It is very common. I talk to people all the time. For example, um, people that would say, you know, uh, you're going to heaven because you're a good person. Because you do good things. Or, they, or, or, or I want to do enough good things so that I can go to heaven. That seems, uh, maybe on the surface, that seems sensible. Isn't it the good people that go to heaven? Isn't it by doing good things that we please God? But it is getting this ordering mixed around from how it is. He said, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. See, your good works, by your good works, you do not earn the favor of God. You do not earn your salvation. You are not saved because of the good things that you do. That doesn't mean that you are not called to do good works. But where do those work, good works come from? They come from the workmanship of God in you. And they come from the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. So we see that the cause of salvation is grace. By grace are ye saved. You're saved by God's grace, which is his kindness and generosity to the undeserving. It can be said many different ways, but, but it's by God's generosity to those who don't deserve it. By grace are ye saved. I mean, he made you alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins. You did not earn that. You received it graciously. Uh, Imperfect analogy, illustration, but, but uh, here's one that comes to mind. Let's say that I was poor and destitute. I had no money. I had nowhere to live. I, uh, I didn't have enough money to buy food to be able to feed my family. But uh, I had a rich uncle, and my rich uncle decides that he is going to leave me in his will a large fortune of a hundred million dollars. And uh, he leaves me a hundred million dollars and I show up to the distribution of the will and the executor of the will hands me a check for a hundred million dollars. I take that hundred million dollars, I cash it, I go to the bank, I get some money out, I go to the grocery store, of course, and I buy some food. 
and I feed my family, and I'm probably buying whatever I want that, that day, but I feed my family with some delicious and good food. I was able to go from a state of poverty and destitution to abundance and, being, and having my belly and the bellies of my family filled. But how did that happen? What was the cause? Well, the cause was the wealth and generosity of my uncle. Because he was kind enough to leave me all that wealth. And that wealth took me from a state of poverty and destitution into uh, a state. So when I come home from the grocery store, I don't come to my family and I say, Hey, family, look at me. Look how great I did today. I went to the grocery store and I bought macaroni and cheese and I brought it home. And I I boast about that. No, that's not what we're standing around Uh, uh, praising and being thankful for that day is not my works but the wealth and generosity that led to the change of state that I came in so that's the that's the cause of it but what was the means the means was that in that case the check that the executor handed me that I could take to the bank that transferred that wealth from my uncle's estate to my account where it can be a benefit to me and I can enjoy the blessings of it. And then the works that resulted from that, the result of that was I was able to buy food to feed my family. Again, not a perfect uh, parallel with here, but you see the difference between the cause and the means and the result. The cause of our salvation is God's grace. The means by which we receive it and enjoy it is faith, belief in Jesus Christ, the means through which we uh, receive those blessings. And the result is the good works that we do, which are the result of God's workmanship in us. For you are saved by grace through faith. And lest we be confused at all, he says, and that... Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the grammar of that sentence is to say the that, which is not of yourselves, is everything previous in the sentence. The grace of God and the faith through which we receive that salvation are all the gift of God. They do not come from ourselves, something that we do. But then the good works that flow out of that are to the praise and the glory of God. And true faith, true faith, we are taught, will result in works that flow out of that faith. James says faith without works is dead because what he's confronting is the idea that someone could say they have faith, but then they have no works that manifest that faith in their lives. It'd be like if uh, I lived back in the time of Noah And Noah comes to my house and he says, guess what? God told me there's going to be a flood that's going to wipe out the whole earth. But I've got good news. I'm building an ark. And uh, if you want to come onto the ark, you can come. And I say, you know what, Noah? I believe that, that you're I believe everything you say. He said, "Okay, come onto the ark. And I say, no, like, I'm just going to stay here. It's I like it in my house and. And I do nothing. I say that I believe him, 
but my actions do not follow from the belief. What would you say about my, my faith in what Noah says? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a real belief at all. And that's what James addresses. And so true faith, if we truly believe everything that we've looked at today about the work of God in our lives, if we truly believe that will flow forth and manifested in our lives in works that bring praise and glory to the name of God and manifest his workmanship in us. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He that cometh to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So when we truly believe in God's word, that will manifest it in our lives in works unto his praise. But those even those works are not done to earn God's favor or to earn praise for ourselves, but they are done to manifest the glory and the praise of God, that we might be like one of those musicians, one of those players. We're not just playing our own tune, but we are living out a calling that God has made for our lives, that we might, by our lives, manifest the glory of God who is working, has worked, and will work in us, in our lives.